Many people think that your cancer journey ends when your cancer goes away. But anyone with cancer can tell you that isn't the case. Imagine you were involved in an accident and broke your leg. You went to the hospital and the doctors gave you a cast. And when you got back home, everybody signed it. Then six weeks passed and it's time for the cast to come off. You still feel a bit stiff and it aches in the cold, but it's not broken, right? Everything should be back to normal, right? Isn't it a wonderful thing? You know, I remember when I was a teenager, I was reading, my sister was studying at medical school and I managed to lift off a book of her, of sort of oncology textbook, and it was full of really scary pictures and not a lot of good news. And now, Mm. you know, our biggest problem is that we're going to have a lot of cancer survivors. I think that's awesome. From Rare Cancers Australia, you're listening to Radio Rare the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. I'm James Matthews, and today RCA's own Dr. Emily Isham will be talking with Professor Ogda Koswara as they discuss what cancer survivorship means and how Australia's medical system is dealing with treatment of cancer patients. Just a reminder that whilst you may be one of only a handful of people with your cancer in Australia, added together, all those rare and less common cancers make up a community of tens of thousands of people here in Australia. If you or your caregiver ever need to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you. Reach out on 1800 257 600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Emily Isham, and today's topic is cancer survivorship. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Bogda Kojwara, a medical oncologist and a senior staff specialist at the Flinders Centre for Innovation in Cancer. Good afternoon, Professor Kojwara. Welcome to Radio Rare. Thank you for having me. Would you mind please telling us a bit about yourself and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. So I am a medical oncologist working in Adelaide in South Australia. I initially started uh, working mostly in the area of breast cancer, and that's where I developed an interest in the care of cancer survivors. And of late, I had transitioned more into survivorship research with less time dedicated to clinical care. And my main focus of research is new models of care delivery and in particular care integration between different sectors of of healthcare services. Okay, wow, varied and interesting. So what drew you to looking at the survivorship particularly after you'd already been involved in cancer care? What about that particular topic drew your interest? I'll perhaps answer with an anecdote. When I arrived in Australia, one of the first patients that I saw was a person who presented, in fact, with breast cancer, but it was a man who had cancer as a child, well-treated and cured Wilms tumor, which is the tumor that was sort of involving the kidney and required treatment with radiotherapy around the sort of the kidney area. And that person did very well from the perspective of the original cancer, but many, many years later developed initially a heart attack, which in retrospect was related to radiotherapy treatment effect on his cardiac blood vessels and subsequently developed breast cancer pretty much for the same reason. So on one hand, this really illustrates how 
wonderful and effective treatment had been for him when he was a child many decades earlier, but on the other hand, showed that there is often an untoward consequence of cancer treatment that requires management in the long run. And his cancer, his breast cancer was treated and treated quite effectively. But that made me realize that there is more to cancer treatment than just immediate uh, aspects of care. And that was probably an example of how survivorship care is really relevant, in particular, as we are better at treating patients and curing so many cancers. And it's more than just living after cancer with the physical scars of the cancer, is it? There's this mental toll as well. Have you worked a lot with that? Absolutely. And I think that it's worth reflecting and perhaps emphasizing that the contemporary definition of what cancer survivor is refers to a person diagnosed with cancer from the time of diagnosis up to, until the end of life. And we know already that there are significant mental as well as physical implications of cancer diagnosis as well as cancer treatment. And of course, the definition includes impact on family and friends and caregivers. So that sort of impact, both physical and mental and practical, applies to the person as well as the immediate family and friends. And that means that it is relevant to those cured of cancer, as well as those living with cancer that potentially may not be cured. So I think that there is many different aspects of survivorship that require attention and require addressing. Having said that, it is important to say that cancer survivorship is not a disease and we do not want to make it as such. In fact, many people don't like the term cancer survivor because it sort of categorizes them into a particular box that may not necessarily fit their expectations. And I think the term is not ideal and it has a lot of limitations. And I tend to find that the term that is really useful is survivorship care as opposed to the term survivor. And the survivorship care is important to define because it addresses the type of care and the type of interventions that relate to ensuring that the person diagnosed with cancer lives well after cancer diagnosis. And I think that that's something that sometimes gets lost in the process of planning of anti-cancer care. We tend to focus on the tumor, but in survivorship care, we're focusing on the person affected by cancer. So for those of you listening who haven't heard this term before, survivorship is an area of cancer care that focuses on the health and well-being of a person with cancer from the time of diagnosis right until the end of life. This includes the physical, mental, emotional, social and financial effects of cancer that begin at diagnosis and continue through treatment and then beyond treatment when the regular appointments and routine hospital care falls away. During our interview with patient care coordinator, Christine Coburn, she mentioned that after the initial cancer treatment, she felt like the parade passed by. Survivorship means that care continues after treatment. So in your survivorship programs or the the ones that you've been involved in starting or looking into, what is exactly involved from, say, say I'm a person who's just been told that that's the end of my cancer treatment today. How do we go about setting up long-term care for someone like me? 
That's a very good question. And I think that it's important that you ask this very question of how do we go about it as well as what is involved. In answering that first question, how do we go about it? Well, that depends on what is relevant to you. So the how involves putting a person in the middle. And historically, cancer follow-up after cancer diagnosis tended to follow up on prevention or detection of recurrence of cancer. And it's perfectly understandable that people diagnosed with cancer as well as their healthcare providers are interested in making sure that the cancer hasn't returned, but there might be other priorities as well. For example, making sure that the treatment that was given does not cause too many side effects that affect ones in the long run whether they are physical or mental or practical, things like peripheral neuropathy or depression or fear of cancer recurrence, or perhaps practical issues like loss of employment as as a result of cancer treatment. So monitoring for cancer recurrence is one. Managing physical, emotional, practical consequences of cancer is another. Addressing other health problems that the person might already have whether it is underlying cardiovascular disease or diabetes or some other health problem, and managing those in a sort of in an integrated fashion is another aspect of survivorship care. And finally, health promotion that relates to making sure that people develop appropriate lifestyle behaviors, exercise, healthy diet, not smoking, undergoing appropriate screening interventions like mammography or colonoscopy, etc. All those are important aspects of survivorship care. If you could explain in your words why this is such a long-term thing, why do people who have had cancer have so many consequences of treatment, be it medical medical issues and healthcare issues or psychosocial consequences. Are you able to explain why that is? Well, I can try. And I think that it's in addressing this question, it's worth looking at different types of consequences one after the other. So the good news is that when it comes to psychological concerns, they seem to be at its highest shortly after cancer treatment is completed, and they improve. And the quality of life of cancer survivors over time in long term tends to approximate people without history of cancer. So those concerns actually get better over time. The physical concerns vary. So, for example, for cancers where treatment may have been not terribly complicated, like, for example, if you have a skin cancer and all you have is surgery, then the physical concerns might be quite limited. Conversely, if you have treatment that's really toxic, for example, bone marrow transplant or very intensive chemotherapy, then the toxicity of treatment might be longer lasting. And that is the case in particular if you have other underlying conditions. Many, many people diagnosed with cancer are older. They have other pre-existing conditions. And as they get older over time living with cancer, there is this interface between comorbid health conditions as well as consequences of cancer that might have impact. And those consequences might be longer lasting. Uh, And of course, some other consequences of cancer, let's say toxicity to the heart, might occur later because that's how long it takes for those problems to develop. So we're now learning, for example, that if you're exposed to cardiotoxic treatment, whether this is chemotherapy or radiotherapy, the impact of it may occur 10 years down the track. 
And that during that time, you might have aged for 10 years and your baseline risk factors for cardiovascular disease will play a role as well. So in a way, it's again one of those situations that as we are living longer in general, there is an overlap between the risk factors for general health conditions that we get as we get older, as well as consequences of cancer treatment and cancer itself all the time. It's not very clear-cut, but it isn't always the case of having treatment and never thinking about cancer again. And having other diseases or illnesses at the same time can just add to the long-term issues which have developed as a result of intense treatments. How do you begin to address this to find a solution? Now, how do we go about it? Putting a person at the centre of the decision-making is a really important part because different individuals will have different views of what matters to them the most, what is most concerning, what is most frightening, and what is the best way of delivering care. There'll be some patients who would say, I have underlying heart disease, which is a main pro- my main problem, and I'm going to focus on that. And my cancer was effectively cured, doesn't cause me much problems, and I really do not think that that is a major concern at the moment. And that's fine. But there might be others, let's say, people who had very complex and intensive cancer treatment and no other comorbidities where the cancer priority, a cancer will be a priority. And I think that we need to devise a way of delivering care that is appropriate and acceptable to the person affected by cancer. For those people who live in the rural areas, delivering care through remote means like telemedicine might be the preferred way to go. For those that have a particular relationship with a particular healthcare provider, it's important that that provider is involved in care delivery. So I think that there isn't such a thing at one size fits all in survivorship care. In fact, the care really needs to be tailored to individuals affected by cancer in such a way that the care delivered is actually helpful rather than just additional burden that is presented to them. It seems quite sophisticated in this day and age to be so patient-centric and to spend that much time working out what the patient really needs. But by the same token, it's quite an efficient way of actually addressing the issues. I was wondering if you found that patients or those who are involved in survivorship programs and, and receiving that care Are they motivated enough to be involved once they've dealt with all the years of treatment? It's a a complex issue. I think it is fair, fair to say that the level of motivation varies in Uh, people affected by cancer and in cancer healthcare providers. When it comes to providers, the level of skill varies. Some Mm -hmm. specific examples, we have very good data from Australia that when it comes to young survivors of cancer, so for example, adult survivors of childhood cancers or survivors of adolescent and young adults cancers often disengage from healthcare which is not unusual because that's often a pattern of disengagement that young people in general experience. It's just that survivors of cancer might have additional needs, so this disengagement potentially could be problematic. But many may not have a regular GP. They might be discharged from the pediatric healthcare system and not really embrace the adult healthcare system. So their level of motivation may not be great, and we need to find ways of engaging with them in the way that works for them. 
The level of engagement of healthcare professionals also varies. Some are very interested and motivated, and I think nurses excel here. They have a very holistic view of, of care delivered in general, but also in particular in care of cancer survivors, and I think there is tremendous opportunity there. But some uh, other providers might be more interested in management of acute cancer, less so the survivorship care. This issue of putting the patients at the center of care delivery and care planning requires some specific skills. Uh, skills like motivational interviewing are, are very good at um, emphasizing particular behavioral change, but they're not necessarily skills that innate to us. They require training. And I recall that when we first started delivering survivorship care at Flinders, some, some of our staff reflected on the fact that the model of care delivery was quite different from what we do in acute cancer care. When I prescribe chemotherapy, I would say to the patient, this is the chemotherapy you're going to have. These are the side effects. This is what you need to do. And the care model is very prescriptive. Whereas when you're talking to a person who has finished treatment and you're going to be talking to them about, let's say, weight management, you really need to start by saying, is this a priority? And what do you think, like, how does it fit with your overall goals? And how do you think you could prioritize that and what would you want to do about it and how could we support you? That's a completely different approach that requires some training and some practice to put it into action. So I think that the challenges are still there in terms of skilling up the workforce, developing models of care that apply to patients and managing the volume of work that is required. In pediatric cancers, the numbers are smaller and perhaps the more tailored and sophisticated care delivery is a little bit easier to deliver. But if you're looking at the number of people affected by cancer, living with cancer for more common cancers, we have to be pragmatic uh, with regards to how we manage the numbers of 1.2 million people living in Australia today who live with the cancer diagnosis. Not every aspect of that care should be delivered or could be delivered through survivorship programs. Those skills and those services need to be embedded into day-to-day -day healthcare practice, including primary care. Uh, yeah, that's a huge number. And, and it's getting higher and higher as our cancer treatments improve. So it's becoming more and more relevant now than it was even then. Is that right? Very much so. In fact, survivorship care is a luxury that cancer care services with good outcomes can enjoy. If you provide cancer care in countries with very limited resources and very limited cancer infrastructure, the priority should be treating cancers and curing cancers because that's where the biggest need is. Only once you get to the stage of curing a lot of cancers, then you can invest your energy in looking after cancer survivors because you have cancer survivors. You know, mm -hmm. I remember when I was a teenager, I was reading, my sister was studying at medical school and I managed to lift off a book of her, of sort of oncology textbook, and it was full of really scary pictures and not a lot of good news. And now... Mm -hmm. You know, our biggest problem is that we're going to have a lot of cancer survivors. I think that's awesome. Yes, it's wonderful. Yes, Absolutely. indeed. Coming up after these words from our patient support team. I think the 
Australia is amazing when it comes to the recognition of the power and potential of strong advocacy. More so than in many, many other countries, we have very strong, well-developed, well-organized advocacy groups. Hello, this is Ailey at Rare Cancers Australia. How can I help you today? Hi, I was just wondering if you could help me with... Our specialist cancer navigators can help you with the challenges that come with a rare cancer diagnosis. Our services are free and there is no criteria for accessing support from us. We understand that every situation is unique and no two people are the same. If you have been diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, our patient support team look forward to hearing from you. Call us on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Rare. In the first half of this episode, Dr. Emily and Professor Kozuara were talking to us about cancer survivorship and what it all means. For many, just as the healing process doesn't end when the cast comes off, the cancer journey doesn't end after the cancer is removed. Thousands of Australians struggle each day not knowing what comes next and feeling isolated in that confusion. As we see increasing numbers of cancer diagnoses, there will be more and more Australians who can benefit from having this survivorship support. So join us as we return to Emily and Bogda as they discuss just how ready our healthcare system is to provide it. Are we ready? I think we're ready. You know, I actually, today, as we're grappling with the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm actually quite reassured that when it comes to tremendous challenges, Australian healthcare system is informed by evidence, flexible to adapt innovative approaches to challenges, nimble to do that quickly, collaborative. And in Australia, when it comes to survivorship, there is tremendous degree of expertise, research productivity and leadership. So I actually think we're very well positioned to manage those challenges. And if these are the challenges that we're grappling with, bring them on. These are really good challenges to have. Yeah, that's you're you're very right in reframing it that way, and it's really great that we're not just looking at just treatment in acute treatment outcomes, but we're looking long term and we're trying to improve the quality of life for all those who are survivors who are in survivorship care. I was wondering what you think a perfect cancer survivorship program needs to include. Obviously, it needs to include a wide variety of allied health input. Yes, I think that the perfect survivorship program needs to consider a variety of, of issues. First of all, it is worth reflecting whether you're looking at the program of research or program of care. With regards to the program of care, the, the care delivered needs to reflect the needs of the population it serves. And, and that really means that we need to be informed by real-time, real population data. 
So the care for people in metropolitan uh, service delivering care for, let's say, bone marrow transplant survivors will be different to the care delivered for indigenous populations or pediatric populations or rural populations, etc. And I think that the most important aspect of development of the program is connecting strongly with what are the needs of the population we serve collecting data, responding to the data, engaging with survivors themselves in analyzing what their data might mean and and what are their preferences of how to deliver care. The other aspect of, of survivorship program that I feel quite passionate about is that the clinical care should inform research and research should inform clinical care. I would really think that we have such wonderful opportunity to connect the two. So I would hope that care delivery programs are closely integrated with research interventions. And one of the potential opportunities there is to really grow the scope and magnitude of research endeavor by creating larger intervention research programs. Survivorship research is not new, but for many, many years, we have seen small projects, small numbers, single cancers. What we need to see is larger programs of large-scale intervention research, where we can really draw some very generalizable observations there in such a way that we do not just do research in breast cancer or just prostate cancer, but actually look at different cancers and try to draw conclusions for all cancers, including rare cancers, because we that information is currently lacking. I also feel that we need to we need to invest in basic research. We need to understand mechanisms of some of the survivorship changes we're seeing let's say, for example, cardiovascular disease after cancer. And that requires understanding mechanisms of how it develops so we can actually develop specific interventions for it. So I think research is is very important as an element that underpins and supports development of, of good care. And this all is supported by solid data to inform care. It's particularly good to note that the typical ideal of research being separate for patients is now changing. In our two previous interviews, medical researchers Professor David Thomas and Dr Richard Tottle both spoke about the fact that they have been brought a lot closer to the patients who are at the heart of their work. Good research informs how how well those people feel cared for. So by virtue of having a great big community, because there's so much support and research done in breast cancer, uh, in, in the more common types of breast cancer, there will be support inherent in that because there is more knowledge and there is more community. Whereas if you have a rare cancer where there is little community because it's so rare and the knowledge is lacking, someone is going to feel much more isolated. Absolutely. And I think that that isolation is really something that we need to recognize as a challenge and proactively deal with it. I think that whenever we examine any aspect of of care and try to draw some research conclusions, sort of recommendations for practice, it is always worth asking which aspect of the recommendations should be generic and therefore applicable to everybody. Which aspect is unique? And if it is unique, what are the unique aspects that might be pertaining to, for example, different aspects of rare cancers? 
and what is the minimum standard that should be provided. So we can certainly draw a lot of uh, observations from research in common cancers, whether they are breast, prostate, colorectal, etc. But we also need to recognize that there will be unique aspects of care that are relevant to rare cancers and actually identify what they might be and design research that addresses some of those aspects. I think that we've been doing research in cancer survivorship for long enough that we can now focus on some of the more invisible aspects of survivorship experience and make them visible and really, really make a difference. And I think that I would imagine that that's the least that the society would expect of us. And have you found that people being cared for in these programs respond well to the long-term support and and the follow-up involved? Yes, as long as that support fits with what the overall goals are. There are some patients who, after completion of cancer treatment, want to say farewell to the cancer care system and never return. And I think that's fine. And they can be well supported in the community. There are others who value that connection and value connection of their peers in the cancer community. It really varies, which brings us back to that original point that if we want to be helpful to people affected by cancer, we need to ask them of what that means for them. Mm, making it patient-centric again. Yes. So what, what do you think have been the great successes in Australia for those who have lived with cancer in their lives and have come through it? I think Australia is amazing when it comes to the recognition of the power and potential of strong advocacy. More so than in many, many other countries, we have very strong, well-developed, well-organized advocacy groups, whether this is uh, Rare Cancer Australia or Breast Cancer Network or Canteen or Prostate Cancer Foundation or others where the voice of cancer survivors really drives the clinical practice and the research agenda. And I think those examples really underpin the national policy on engagement with consumers that, again, in Australia is better developed than than elsewhere. And as you can see, I'm sort of starting with very broad principles that apply to cancer care in general, but they have tremendous implications on how survivorship care is delivered because through that engagement, we can be reassured that the model of care that we're developing or the research priorities that are identified are actually informed by what is relevant to patients and survivors. And when it comes to examples that sit specifically in survivorship, the model of care for adolescent and young adults that is a national model is a very good example of good survivorship care that really starts from the time of diagnosis but involves follow-up as well. The tremendous advocacy in breast cancer and prostate cancer, very good examples. The prostate cancer has just released a model of survivorship care. The Breast Cancer Network Australia has been working tirelessly on on very important issues in survivorship, such as uh, costs of cancer care, access to care, work after cancer. So I think that there are some very important undertakings that are really driven by survivors themselves. 
And I think that the model is, is very powerful. So I think that if we can continue working within that framework that that we really start by asking what matters to people affected by cancer and go from there, then I think Australia will remain being at the forefront of survivorship care and research. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Bogda. I really appreciate you taking the time to explain all of that. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was Professor Koswara, who is working in the cancer survivorship space to improve the long-term lives and outcomes for those who have been diagnosed with cancer, a much-needed part of our healthcare system. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Dr. Emily Isham, and I'll catch you all next week. What comes next has always been a big question for us. What's the next thing we can do to help? Whose is the next story we can tell? But for survivors following treatment, of a rare or less common cancer, that question isn't just big, it involves the rest of their lives. We hope you've learned something today and that you better understand why it doesn't just end with treatment. As Charles Dickens once said, no one is useless in this world who lightens the burdens of another. Next week, Dr. Emily will be sitting down with Jessica Bean, President and Secretary of the Patient Voice Initiative as the pair discuss the important topic of getting patient voices heard. Thank you for joining us. Bye for now. I think we have to start with broader community understanding of the impact of these conditions. Really honest conversations about what patients experience when they live with these conditions and what they have to do to get these treatments. I think very few people in the community understand that and understand that if they need treatment, they can't take for granted that it will be available to them. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr. Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. The show is mixed by Alexander Smith, narrative writing by Ailey McMaster and Alexander Smith. Reporting by Dr. Emily Isham. We are edited by Christine Coben and myself. And our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website. And you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Simply search Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers, and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back shortly with our next episode. Bye for now.